the murder mystery podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? Hi, this is M.F. Gallagher. In this season two of the murder mystery podcast, Olivia Street goes to work for a millionaire in Venice and help with international art dealing, but she gets caught up in a family feud and murder. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon. On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's The Venetian Affair. Episode 1 The rain starts to spatter onto the windscreen of Olivia's car, somewhere between Great Milton and the rising slopes of the Chiltern Hills, as she makes her way back to her London flat from a day with her parents in Oxford. The oncoming lights from the traffic trudging out of London catch against the water droplets on the glass and blur her view of the route ahead. The sign on the side of the motorway tells her there is a service area in one mile. The rain is heavier now. She pulls off the road and into the stark bleakness that characterises all motorway cafes. Olivia parks up and runs across the tarmac to the main doors, then into the bowels of a long and low, but brightly lit building that contains the restaurant and shops. She buys a sandwich and coffee and takes a seat next to the window that overlooks the roadway. Cars and lorries flash by behind the glass as her brain goes over the things she has heard today. Her phone buzzes on the table in front of her, so much that it physically hovers above the grey and pink formica surface. She picks it up and looks at the name of the caller, then answers. Hi, Jess, she says, pulling her hand through her blonde hair and away from her face. How are you, Liv? Yeah, good. Sorry to call out of the blue, but I was wondering if you're free to do some legal work. My father is buying some art, says Jess. He doesn't really know anything about art, to be honest, but these so-called art experts are always on about some painting or other to him. Jess doesn't stop for breath. This chap Dad is buying the art with is ghastly, but Dad likes him. We're all going to the Venice house because the chap is there, says Jess. And Dad's sponsoring the British artist who is going to be exhibited this year, Malin Reed. You know him? No. Mum loves the Biennale. Sorry, the what? says Olivia. You know, every two years, art exhibition in Venice says Jess. There's an artist from every country in the world, like the Art Olympics. Oh, OK. Do you know what your dad needs doing? All the art legal stuff, contracts, negotiations, payments, that sort of thing. It's dreadful, but his usual lawyer chap was killed in a skiing accident only a few weeks ago. All very odd, as he was such an expert skier, but apparently he'd gone on the black run and they found him with a huge head wound in the middle of the afternoon in deep snow, says the woman. I said to Dad that you'd be great at all that, and he said to call you. What do you think? Olivia knows that Jess's father, Paddy Cornish, made his money from food canning, then sold his company to an American conglomerate on his fortieth birthday. He now spends his fortune on a whole range of rich man's hobbies, from yachts to houses, and now, evidently, art. Sure, says Olivia. I can do that sort of thing. When would he need the work done? Straight away, 
says Jess. He's in Venice already, and I'm travelling in the morning with Joel and M. OK, I can fly down tomorrow, says Olivia. Any paperwork for me to read? Dad will have loads of stuff for you, don't worry. Sorry, got to go, but he told me to say that you can just name your day rate. Is that OK? Olivia can't think why anyone would ever find that not OK. The radio in the taxi blares loud as Olivia travels from Marco Polo Airport and onto the Via della Liberta, the road that crosses the clear blue water of the lagoon from the mainland at San Giuliana into the city of Venice. Dozens of people are shouting and walking in every direction at the Rampa Santa Chiara drop-off area, where the world of roads ends and the Venetian universe of water begins. She wheels her suitcase down to the Plasta Roma water bus stop on the canal and waits for a vaporetto. The boat that arrives is weighed down with people, hanging off every conceivable part of the craft. It dips low in the water on one side and rolls with the waves of passing boats. But it is the one she needs. Route 1. Ten minutes later she jumps ashore at Sant'Angelo. The sun-soaked paving beneath her feet radiates warmth as she crosses the small square and pulls a vast iron ring that operates the doorbell at Palazzo Mandola. The gloss black door, itself eight foot high, is surrounded by a larger portico, making the entrance to the place cathedral-like. After a minute she hears a latch clunk, and a young Italian woman answers the door, wearing a black skirt and white blouse. Hi, I'm Olivia Street. Ciao, signorina. I'm Paddy Cornish's new lawyer. The woman says nothing more, but beckons Olivia to come in. They walk the length of a long corridor that runs into the building. Rugs and wall hangings have been artistically placed every few feet, and beautiful glass and metal lights pick out details of the twenty-foot-high ceiling. Their footsteps echo on the stone. The woman turns suddenly right through a doorway, and Olivia follows into a bright room that has five windows on one side that look out directly to the water. At the far end, a man sits behind a large black desk. He wears his greying hair short. He has an aquiline nose and large, dark-rimmed glasses that give him an artistic ambience. Signore, says the woman. The man looks up, then stands. He is tall over six foot. This woman is your new lawyer, she says. Welcome, he holds out his hand, and Olivia walks to him. Hello, Mr Cornish, I'm Olivia Street. She notices the girl has already disappeared into the stone corridors of the palazzo. I knew a Tony Street once, excellent finance man. You related? I don't think so, she smiles. I met your daughter at Cambridge. Jessica was telling me. She said, You are a very good lawyer, too. Where have you worked? He speaks briskly, with the assurance of a man who has earned money and status, but is not egotistical. Commercial, mostly, in the US, too, she says. Know anything about art? No, she replies abruptly. He laughs. Thank you for your honesty. The work you need is legal work, I understand. I don't need to know about art to do that. Quite so, 
he says, watching her. You're ballsy, Olivia. I like it. He narrows his eyes for a second. Then his brain moves on. I need to tell you about the work. Let's have tea on the roof. He leads her back out into the guts of the building, past beautifully decorated rooms, laid out for sitting or dining. He puts his head around one doorway, which appears to be the kitchen, and orders tea, then leads Olivia up a set of narrow steps that end in a door set across the rising stairs. He opens it, and the sun floods into the stairwell. They walk out onto an open area that sits at the rooftop level of the surrounding buildings. Everywhere gaggles of palazzos and houses spread out across the city in front of them. He notices that she stops for a second to take in the view, and talks about the first time he came to Venice and fell in love with the city. The Palazzo Mandola had been nearly derelict, and he has spent millions bringing it back up to the level it had been for the centuries before it fell into disrepair. They talk about Venice for fifteen minutes, then the maid, who answers the door, arrives with tea and prompts him to change the subject. Grazie Maria, he says, and the woman holds his gaze for a second. How much of the year do you get to spend here? says Olivia. Most of the summer, the kids don't come down as often as I'd like, but they have their own lives. Have you met Nancy? Not yet. That's your wife, is it? Yes, she's about somewhere. I'll introduce you later. He wipes his forehead with his hand. She loves art, which is how we ended up meeting Malin. I read up on him. Malin Reed, R.A., says Olivia. Recognised by his peers at the British Council at long last. He's been painting for thirty years, you know, says Paddy. Only now has he got the nod to exhibit at Venice. She smiles and he returns it. I'll make some notes, she says, and gets out her phone. He is honest in his demeanour, she notices. This is not a man who is hiding something. Either that, or he's an expert hider. Don't know if you've been to the Biennale before? She shakes her head. You can go and see them all setting up tomorrow. There's a permanent site down near the water, he says. Malin has chosen some works, and he has a freelance designer creating the exhibition. Christina Tate. Olivia is typing. And you're sponsoring the exhibition, she says, looking up from her screen. Yes, I'm helping out. Christina's in charge, to be honest. But I can shape it in little ways. It's about public benefit more than something for me there. Jess said that you're buying some art pieces. Are those some of Malin's paintings? She says. No, that's separate, says Paddy. There's an art dealer who I work with, Vincenti Torito. He finds pieces that might interest him while he's on his travels. He found one that I do want to buy, so he's sorting it out for me. I'll need, I'll need you to do the legals around that deal. What's the picture? It's a Lester Canfield, called The Faithless Child. And who's selling? she says. Private collector? Vincenti has been talking directly to them. Aren't these things normally auctioned? she says. Often, yes, but private deals are done all the time. It doesn't get the publicity that Sotheby's auction gets, of course. Why would a collector not go to auction? She can see he is getting uncomfortable with her questions, and wonders to what extent buying art 
is just playing to his ego as a rich man. Life is all about contacts, Miss Street. Deflection. Noted. She moves on. Could you tell me about what work you need me to do for the exhibition? There are a number of legal issues that Christina needs sorting out, says Paddy. Not glamorous, I'm afraid. Christina is the contact, not Malin, she says. Malin avoids the business side of it all, really, says Paddy. He's worked for Christina before and lets her get on with it. He'll meet him tomorrow when he arrives. He's staying until the opening in a couple of weeks. They continue to talk about details. After half an hour, Paddy needs to get back to whatever he was doing before she arrived. He finds Maria, who shows Olivia to her room, which is on the first floor. The bedroom has two dark wood double French doors, which are open and give access to a small balcony over the water, and inside cool low furniture with yellow and red fabrics and elegant details. She unpacks and takes her tablet onto the balcony. There are two folding but expensive chairs, and she sits on one and switches on the machine. She researches Paddy Cornish. His childhood had been poor. His father was a factory worker, and his mother had looked after six children. Paddy had been bright at school, and two or three good teachers had spotted his talent as a teenager. He was the first person in his family to have any sort of education after the age of sixteen. He had started the British Tin Company in his twenties with two friends. Fifteen years later, when Canarco Inc. came knocking with a buyout offer, the three friends accepted immediately, and it made them all millionaires. There was some public disagreement in the news, as David Goodman, one of the friends, had been less involved in the company in the final years, and had ended up with only ten percent of the capital, while Paddy, and Liam Maxwell had 45% each. Goodman had taken them to court, but lost, and he had publicly threatened the two of them as he stood on the steps of the courthouse after the verdict. Goodman's two sons had also very publicly sworn to see justice done no matter the cost, and the family made two other unsuccessful legal attempts to change the share percentages in the years following the sale. Olivia stops and looks up at the water of the Canal Grande, lost in her thoughts about how people can bear a grudge for so long. From behind her, she hears the bedroom door open and footsteps on the floor. She turns quickly. Jessica is standing there. Hi, they both say simultaneously, and hug. Did you see Dad? says Jess. Yes, he's given me an outline. I've got a few questions, but they'll wait. Thought we could eat out tonight, says Jess. There's so many places to go. See you downstairs at seven. Jess is a few minutes late, and Olivia stands outside the palazzo, watching a vaporetto arriving and unloading its passengers at the Sant'Angelo stop. A slow breeze blows along the water and touches her face. Jess arrives and they walk through the alleyways of Venice, crossing larger thoroughfares, then diving back into narrow stone routes that suddenly turn sharp corners and run alongside some of the backwaters. They emerge into the sunlight at the western end of Piazza San Marco. Olivia can't take it all in. 
Jess is walking fast through groups of tourists and dodging waiters who spread out across the pavements to coax customers to sit and eat. The women turn south towards the lagoon, then over the Ponta del Paglia and into the Hotel Danielli. They take the lift and the maitre d'hotel greets Jess by her first name as they are shown to a table on the very edge of the seating that overlooks the water. Jess points out the Lido in the distance and the church of San Giorgio Maggiore, perched on its own island, just beyond the constant stream of water taxis which plough the sea between the city and the outlying islands. Jess insists that they do the tourists' thing and have Bellini cocktails. Then they eat. Jess orders it all without asking, and they have tuna tartare and camut linguini, followed by seared octopus and beef fillet. After a couple of hours of eating, drinking and catching up, Olivia wants to know more about the work that is needed from her. How long has your father been interested in buying art, then? Ten years, I guess. Maybe twelve. Tell me about this art dealer guy. Your dad mentioned him. Vincenti Tirito? I just don't trust him, replies Jess, narrowing her eyes as she talks. He made a pass at me, but that's an Italian man thing. They do it all the time. Is that why you don't trust him? says Olivia. No, there's something about him. He goes outside to make his telephone calls, and I've tried to talk to him about his background in the art world, and he's always evasive continues Jess. The trouble with the world of fine art buying is that it's populated with loads of rich kids who ended up doing it because they did art history at uni and think they're experts. There are loads of hangers-on who befriend the buyers and take a percentage, but I'm not sure what for. And Vincenti is a hanger-on, says Olivia. I don't know enough about it, really, but I'm not sure what he does that's worth 10% of 20 million. Don't get me wrong, the painting is beautiful but Dad is a bit random with the purchases for his collection. Does he just buy whatever he likes? It's very much an investment in his eyes. Mum is the real art lover. And he does it to please her, really. What about your siblings? says Olivia. Joel is a perfectionist and has the weight of the world on his shoulders, she says. He wants to boss us all around as he's the eldest boy, but he hasn't got the personality for it. But... One very useful thing about Joel is that he owns a private boat hire company here in Venice. So if you need to get anywhere, use his company. She fishes a business card out of her bag. Here, just mention his name and you'll get gold-plated service. Olivia takes the card and puts it in her wallet. What's Philip like? Party boy, little morals, says Jess. We'll shag anything. He pisses off Joel because he doesn't care. Doesn't care who he hurts and doesn't care what people think of him. Is Emily like the others? Says Olivia. Em is a ball of energy, a bit like me. But she's more intelligent, more cunning too, says Jess. She can assess the situation very quickly and change like a chameleon. Some people don't trust her because of that. And others love her for her vitality. Then she adds, Oh, and she's adopted. Dad was firing blanks and Mum wanted to have four. Em doesn't mind. Actually, she quite likes it. It makes her different and mysterious. Says she'll find her birth mother one day. But I doubt it. Why do you doubt it? She's too scared of being lost. 
She belongs here in the family. She wouldn't want to undermine that. Jess calls for the bill and pays it all. They walk home the long way, tracking west along the waterfront, then up around the bank of the Canal Grande until they reach Sant'Angelo. The Palazzo Mandola is dark inside as Jess pushes the heavy front door open. She leans to turn on the lights and throws the switch, but nothing happens. Bloody electrics, she says. Lights are buggered. I know the way. Just follow me. The women walk along the unlit passageway that Olivia used when she first entered the house, and Maria had taken her to Paddy's office. Jess's knowledge of the dimensions of the building allow them to move quickly to the main stairs and climb to the first floor. You okay from here, Liv? Yours is just down there at the end, says Jess, as she disappears into a bedroom near the landing. Olivia has no time to reply. She takes out her phone and shines the torch app down the passageway, then walks slowly along, trying to recall how far it is to her room. Not a sound emanates from the building around her, no sound of water, nor slow rhythm of boat engines on the canal penetrate through the solid, ancient walls of the palazzo. The torchlight suddenly dims. She checks the phone, and she's on 5% battery. She continues her journey, each step now in twilight, so she can barely see her feet on the floor in front of her. A sudden movement comes straight for her out of the night. A figure, all in black, at speed, along the corridor, heading straight for her. She can tell enough to know it's a man. He's tall and large. His momentum hits her all at once. She falls back, but manages to collapse to one side to save crashing onto the stone floor. Her arm falls against the wall as he pushes past, then he disappears into the blackness. Olivia is still in shock when she hears Jess's voice bellowing from somewhere in the house for the guy to stop. She hears a scuffle, and Jess swearing. Olivia gets up and retraces her steps back to the landing. Jess is on the floor, near the top of the stairs. What happened? says Olivia. He didn't want to fight, just ran except I got in his way. Hit my head as I fell, though, says Jess. Olivia inspects the wound. It's not serious, and they both sit on the top step to recover from the fracas. Burglar, do you reckon? says Olivia. Probably. Where did he come from? He came down the corridor near my room. Nothing much to steal there, says Jess. All the good stuff is downstairs in the lounge and in Dad's study, to be honest. They realise they feel dog-tired as they relax again, so say good night. As soon as she enters her bedroom, Olivia can see someone has been there. The wardrobe doors are open, and her tablet and laptop are strewn on the bed with the contents of her daytime handbag, but nothing else is touched. She checks the gadgets. Both have been turned on, but the burglar didn't get through the passwords. More oddly, though, machines hadn't been stolen. She can't stop thinking that it's odd that the intruder came into this particular room, as it's at the very end of a long corridor and away from the other bedrooms. It's almost as though he knew what he was looking for. It can't be a coincidence. Her legal mind doesn't believe in coincidences. But it does make her think that there may be more to this job than Paddy has told her. <laughs>